Heavenly Father, I thank you for who you are, that you are God and we are not. I thank you for what you have done through your Son in redeeming and reconciling us. I thank you for what you're going to do in making all things new, where we will be dwelling with you forever and ever in your presence. And Lord, as we are in this already but not yet, we're waiting and we're trusting. And Lord, I pray that as we open up your word, as we look at the living word and who he is and why he came and what he's going to do, can you open up our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts and our minds to understand? Can we have a humble posture and behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Can we listen to John's testimony who testifies and declares that Jesus is the Son of God, the Chosen One of God? And Lord, can we believe and continue to believe in your name so that we may have life? Lord, you know everybody in this room. You know uh, where they're coming from. You know uh, their attitudes. You know the idols that they cling to. Can you confront those idols? Can you convict them? Can you have people surrender their lives to you as they submit to the only king that is you? So come, Lord, and speak to us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You may have a seat. It's good seeing all of you. If you have your Bibles, uh, let's turn to John uh, chapter 1. Um, if you're new here with us, we are so excited that you've decided to worship with us. There's a card um, in the seat in front of you, um, and if you can just fill out that card, and all we want to do is just reach out to you, and then after the service, you can just drop them off in the drop boxes at the um, exit doors. Um, but we are continuing our series through the Gospel of John, so we're going to be in John chapter 1, verse 19, and we said really the purpose of our series is the purpose uh, of John. Uh, John kind of gives us his his own purpose statement uh, and, and he says in John 20 verse 31 he said but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah he is the Son of God and that by believing that you may have life in his name and so the fundamental question that John is going to address is not who is Jesus but rather who is the Messiah who is the Christ who is the Son of God and so it is a question of identity and John is going to show us that it is Jesus that he is the Messiah that he is the Son of God and he is going to invite us in to believe in his name so that we may have life and so my hope for us in our our series is so that we would see the identity of Christ and my invitation for us week in and week out whether you are a believer or a non-believer the invitation is the same so that you may believe whether you're believing for the first time or whether you're continuing to believe so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God and by believing in his name you will have life. 
life. And so last week we, we started the book and we kind of set the table and we said, notice there's this significant difference uh, between how the Gospel of John and all the other three Gospels are written. And we said that more than likely, John wrote probably his gospel. It's the last of the, the other three gospels. And more than likely, after years of experience in preaching in Palestine and preaching to the Jews uh, among the dispersed areas and reading all the other gospels, uh, and, and maybe from experience, he is saying that all the other gospels are not answering certain questions. There are questions that his people that he's ministering are having, and he's seeing these gospels. They're not tackling these issues and so after years of experience he decides to to in his mind this is how it should be done and he takes all of his thoughts and he puts it on paper and this is where we get the gospel of john and when john begins his gospel he doesn't begin with the historical developments like all the other gospels but he kind of begins his gospel with what the coming of the eternal son the coming of god means and what the, the implications it is for the believer and he begins with his prologue and we said the prologue is kind of like a foyer to a giant house you walk in and it kind of introduces to you the house and it sets the temple of the house and the theme of the house and so this is what john does he draws us in and he invites us into his gospel as he introduces some themes into into the rest of the book of the gospel and later he will unpack all of these themes and he begins with this prologue and he introduces to us to the word and he said in the beginning was the word and you and you're thinking okay this word is different than God because he was with God in other words he is God's own peer and you're thinking well maybe he is less than God and then he turns around and he shocks us and he says no he is God's peer but he also was God and we said that the word means God's self-expression. And then he unpacks for us la later what this word is, that the word created us. The word brings light and life. It confronts us and divides us. And then he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, I want us to pretend, which is really hard, that you've never read the book of John. You have no idea what the Bible says. And somebody just gave you the book. And you read this introduction and it's stunning because the question that you're going to ask yourself when reading it for the very first time is, who is this word he's talking about? Because clearly this word is different than God and yet he is God. He created everything. He's light and life. He confronts. There's some people that believe in him. There's some people that reject him. And then he takes on flesh and dwells among us. And the question is, if we read it for the very first time, is who or what is this word? And what John is going to do is he is going to tell us as he unpacks the testimony of a very well-known, important, and also credible witness. And so let's look at verse 19. Here's the very first, imagine this, the very first a witness that John the Apostle bring to the stand to verify to us who is this word. He says in verse, uh, verse 19, this was John's testimony, that's John the Baptist, when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, who are you? He didn't deny it, but confessed, I'm not the Messiah. 
What then, they asked him, are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Are you the prophet? No, he answered. So let's stop here. So obviously the claims that the Apostle John is going to make about the Word and the Word becoming flesh requires a witness. So the very first witness that John brings for us is John the Baptist, and he begins by telling us the story of this witness. Now, John the Baptist, um, in, in his preaching and his ministry in the wilderness, attracted a very large crowd and drew attention throughout Palestine. And it drew so much attention that the Jerusalem religious leaders actually gathered uh, some, a, a group of delegators and investigators to go and find out who this John is, what authority he has in his ministry, and what's the significance of his ministry. And so John the Apostle tells us a little bit about these delegations of who they are. They are priests and they are Levites. Now, it's kind of important for us to understand what are priests and what are Levites. So real quick, what we have to understand is all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. In other words, all uh, priests and Levites were descended from Levi. Again, it's not rocket science. They came from Levi. That's why they're called Levites. But in order to be a priest, you had to be a descendant from Aaron that was also descendant from Levi. So the priests were the people that served in the temple. They, they did all the sacrifices, all the ritual purifications. And the Levites kind of were assistants to the priests. Whatever they needed, they did. And eventually they became like the, the palace guards. And so here you have these religious leaders who put this team of Levites and priests together to go and find out about who John is. But I also think it's important for us to note that John himself was a descendant of Levi and a descendant of Aaron because if you understand a little bit of scripture, here's a little extra credit question. Uh, who was John the Baptist, mama and papa? Zechariah and Elizabeth. And who were they? Zechariah was a priest. So more than likely, these priests and the Levites are not just going to some, some Joe Smo in the desert, but rather they're going to John knowing that he is a descendant of a priest, a.k.a. he's almost like family. And now you're wondering, okay, why did the religious leaders send priests and Levites to John? Well, maybe because John was a descendant of a priest. It's like, go, go talk to your fourth or eighth cousin uh, six times removed. Go address him. And so these investigators are coming with one question. And the question is, who are you? It's almost a question of authority. Like, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? And what authority, what credibility, what credentials do you have to do all of these things? And notice how John responds. Like, like John doesn't say, well, my name is John the Baptist. Uh, my dad's name is Zachariah. My mom's name is Elizabeth. We're kind of family. You know, he used to be a priest, uh, but he passed. We, we really do miss him. But what does he say? He says, I am not the Messiah. But they didn't ask if he was the Messiah. And I think by him saying, I'm not the Messiah, he understood the, the, the kind of the, the, the intentions of these investigators. 
they really did not care about who John was or what authority he had. In that question, who are you, they really wanted to know, is he the Messiah? Now, here, here's why. Because in the first century, especially among Palestine, it was rife with messianic expectation. Because think about um, 30 years ago, uh, before, John's, uh, before this incident happened, John was born, Jesus was born, you had the star in Bethlehem, you had angelic beings appearing to shepherds, you had rumors talking about the Messiah's born, Herod decided to, to kill babies, and you have, you have all of these rumors going. So, so everybody has these hopes and expectations that the Messiah has come, and now they're hearing about John the Baptist preaching and baptizing and drawing a large crowd, and so the expectations is high, and they come with the hope and the expectation and John just crushes it and says, nope, I'm not the Messiah. And so now they're thinking, okay, if you're not the Messiah, uh, maybe you are a popular end-time figure. Maybe you are Elijah. And the reason why they thought maybe he's Elijah if he's not the Messiah, because in Malachi uh, chapter 4, verse 5, it says, Look, I'm going to send to you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord that comes. So in other words, before the Messiah comes, a prophet like Elijah will appear. So if he's not the Messiah, clearly he's the prophet Elijah. Because Elijah's ministry and John the Baptist's ministry is very similar. Both are with urgency preaching repentance. So maybe he is Elijah. And what does John say? I'm not. Now, it's very interesting to note, even though John the Baptist denies to be Elijah, Jesus identifies John the Baptist as Elijah, Matthew 11, verse 13 to 14, it says, for all the pro Jesus says this, For all the prophets and the law prophesied and told John, and if you're willing to accept that he is the Elijah who is to come, let anyone who has ears listen. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is to show you that even though John the Baptist did not see significance in his ministry, Jesus did. Jesus saw the significance of his ministry, which really shows us the humility that John walked in. And we're going to see this continued humility that he is walking in as he's testifying about who the Messiah is. So if John is not the Messiah, if he's not the Elijah, if he's, then, then is he a prophet? And the prophet they were hoping for was a prophet like Moses, because Moses said in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. And what does John say? No. Now, you can just imagine their frustration. Imagine you were sent with a purpose to investigate John the Baptist, to find out who he is, why he's doing it, what credentials he has, what authority he has, and the only thing he gives you is a series of denials. He's not the Messiah. He's not Elijah. He's not a prophet like Moses. And they know we can't just go back and say, well, we know what he's not, but we have no idea what he is. And so they, they respond. Look at how they, the frustration of these investigators in verse 22 says this. Who are you then, they ask. 
We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? And he said, verse 23, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. So obviously these investigators couldn't just tell uh, their religious leaders, their bosses, who John is not. They had to give him something. And this is what John replies. He, he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. He says, I can tell you I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. So in other words, what John is doing, he might refuse that he identifies with any popular end-time figure. But in his statement, he's not saying his ministry has no purpose and significance. I might not be special. I might not be important. I might not be significant, but let me tell you about my ministry. Let me tell you about my purpose. And here is my purpose. I am the one in the wilderness crying out. I'm a voice of the Lord to make straight the path, to prepare for the Messiah coming. And look at how they responded in verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, so now we know exactly who sent them, the Pharisees. So they ask him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? So so it almost seems like they were not satisfied with John's answer. It's like, okay, that's your purpose, that's your significance, that's what you're doing, but you don't answer our question. Like, what authority do you have? Who gave you the right to do these things? You're not coming from us. You don't have any ordination certificate. You don't have any credentials. Who do you think you are? And so the very interest that they had was a question of authority. Like, what authority do you have? What credibility do you have? Who authorizes you to baptize all of these people? Because you can't just have any Joe Smo baptize people. You either have to be a prophet sent by God, an end-time figure or the Messiah, or be commissioned by us. And we know we did not commission you. So what are you doing? And why are you doing it? I love John's response. He says, I baptize with water, John answered them. You know what that means? It's like this. Yeah, you're right. I baptize. I baptize with water. I'm not going to deny it. I baptize with water. But read verse 20, but read the second part of verse 26. He says, Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He is the one coming after me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. And all this happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. In other words, he's saying, yeah, you're absolutely right. I baptize. But let me tell you, I am nothing compared to the one that is going to come. And so when John spoke of the Messiah, he he spoke of the Messiah as the one who would not be recognized among his people. And John empathetically stated that when he comes, 
Not even I will be worthy to untie his sandals. Now, this was a significant statement because this reference gives us great insight in what John was trying to communicate to these leaders. Because in the ancient world, everybody walked. And everybody wore sandals. And you can just imagine how dirty someone's feet will get of walking in the dusty, dirty roads covered in mud when it rains, uh, in the dry dust in the middle of the desert. And when you would enter into a house, you would take your sandals off. And if you were wealthy, you had the lowest of servants, and their only job was to remove the sandals of your guests. And what's John saying? John is saying, Yeah, you're right, I might be baptizing. But the one is coming. He is going to be so worthy that I'm not even worthy to perform the lowest task of simply removing his sandals from his feet. The lowest service that you have in your household, I can't even compare to them compared to the worthiness of Jesus Christ. And so if you're taking notes, he gives us a hint of who this word is. And so so here's the first thing in this hint of who the word is. Again, this is not a sentence. It was a long sentence. I'm just going to give you the bullet point and then give you the sentence. But take notes. It says this. His, that's John's unworthiness, compared to the Messiah's worthiness. Here's the first hint. John compares his unworthiness to the worthiness of the Messiah. In other words, John sees himself as so unworthy that he cannot even come close to the worth of the Messiah. So who's this word? Who's the Messiah? Who's this one coming? He is so worthy that even the religious leaders that comes to John and ask him about his authority, John says, let me tell you guys, we cannot even come close to compare to his worth. We cannot even be the lowest servants in serving him. And then I think from an application perspective, John is just brilliantly illustrating the honor of this Messiah as we see the humble posture that John has. And I think if we really understand who the Messiah is, Shouldn't we have a similar posture to that of John? If John is saying, and none of you are John the Baptist, and Jesus will even say no one will ever be, and he's one of the greatest. If John the Baptist in all of his greatness is saying, I can't even take his sandals off, what does that mean for me and you? His worth of this word of this coming one, of this Messiah is so great, you cannot even perform the smallest and the lowliest of tasks in his presence. And in a sense, by John making this statement, it's very interesting. Think about this delegation here. What was their primary concern? Their primary concern was that of authority. All they wanted to know is, hey, who gave you the right to do what you're doing? What authority do you have? And you know what John is saying in a sense? Hey guys, just check this out. You care about my authority. I'm not going to defend it. Yeah, you're right, I baptize. I'm not going to give you my credentials. 
But let me tell you about the one who has the ultimate authority. The little authority that you're after cannot even come close to the authority of the one that is coming. And if you're so caught up in authority, you're going to miss it. Because the only way to see the Messiah is not to come from the perspective of who gives you the authority, but from the perspective of humility. And think about what if the religious leaders continually miss? That who was the Messiah? They never got it. Jesus even told them straight who's the Messiah. But they were so caught up with authority that they couldn't humble themselves and they completely missed it. And this is why John says, you don't know him. And in a sense, he's saying, you're probably not going to know him because you're so wrapped up in authority. And who gives him authority that you completely miss the point? And in this statement, he kind of like just gives it to them. And so I think, again, from an application perspective, if we see our unworthiness compared to the worthiness of Christ, the worthiness of the Messiah, that should generate inside of us a posture of humility. And so I think a question for you to ask in your life, do I have that posture of humility? Do I see my unworthiness compared to the worthiness of Christ? And the only way to the seeing the Messiah for who he is, it requires humility. Let's move on. In verse 29. So again, in the Gospel of John, he introduces to us through this word. And the question we're asking ourselves, because we've never read John, okay, hypothetically speaking, we're just pretending, we've never read John. He still has not told us who this word is. He gives us a hint and says, nope, not me. He tells us that this Messiah is so worthy that not even John can touch his sandals. But again, notice, he still has not told us who the Messiah is. Who this word is and then we get to verse 29 and he tells us and he attributes titles and purposes to him look at verse 29 he says the next day john saw jesus coming towards him and said here is the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world it's the very first time we read the name of jesus so obviously the next day in verse 29 uh, probably refers to uh, at the day after John's response to this Jerusalem investigators. And so at this point, John saw Jesus coming towards him and war bore witness both public and startling. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So here he testifies to us who this word is. In a sense, he sees Jesus, and what, what title does he attribute to Jesus? He says, Jesus is the Lamb of God. So if you're taking notes, the second hint he gives us in his testimony, not only because of his, worth, his worthiness, but he's also the Lamb of God. And what's his purpose? To take away the sins of this world. Now, for us, we're aware of that title with Jesus, but for the Jews, that's a radical declaration. Because for all the Jews listening in, they never saw the Messiah as the Lamb of God. They saw the Messiah maybe as the Davidic king, 
They saw the Messiah maybe as the promised uh, prophet or the suffering servant, but as the Lamb of God, they did not see that coming. And yet, the Lamb of God, which doesn't have any meaning for us, had meaning for them because this theme of Lamb of God occurred throughout Scripture and most notably occurred in Exodus chapter 12 where the Lamb of God referred to as the Passover Lamb. And the Passover lamb was the time where, where, where the Lord delivered his people. And he told them to slaughter the lamb and to eat the lamb and to take the blood of the lamb and to put it all over the door frames of your houses so that when judgment passes and the angel of death passes, you will not be destroyed. Your firstborn son will not die, but the Lord will spare you as he delivers you. And so the people in haste would eat this lamb, trusting that the Lord would spare their firstborn son and what John is saying is that Passover lamb that we are celebrating he is the Messiah he is the he is Jesus and his very purpose is to take away the sins of the world in a sense he would cover the sins of his people he would, would take all of our sin and our guilt and our shame upon himself. He would be sacrificed. His blood will cover the door frames of our hearts. And God would not destroy us because of the Lamb of God who would satisfy the wrath of God. And yet, unlike this Passover lamb, this lamb of God, the Passover lamb was just for the Hebrew people. And yet John says, this, this Lamb of God who takes the sins of who? The world, including Jews and Gentiles. So, so let's put it back into the Gospel of John. Right in the first chapter, we're introduced to the Word became flesh. We're wondering, who in the world is this Word? John the Apostle brings John the witness as his first witness. And John the Baptist says, it's not me. The one who's coming is so worthy, I can't even touch his sandals. But let me tell you, he is Jesus, the Lamb of God. And his very purpose is to take away the sins of the world. Now, again, you've never read John. What would your question be? My question would be, how, how did John know that it was Jesus? What evidence does he have? What else does he tell us about this Jesus who is the word that became flesh? How is he going to take away the sins of the world? Well, look at verse 31. John, John tells us, he says, John the Baptist says, I did not know him. But I came baptizing with water so he might be revealed to Israel. Verse 32, And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, The one you see the Spirit is descending on and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Verse 34, I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God of God. Now apparently John uh, the Baptist had baptized Jesus sometime earlier, but up to this point in verse 31, John himself did not know Jesus. 
Now, that doesn't mean he did not know Jesus at all because they technically were related. Probably grew up with Jesus. But he never put two and two together that Jesus was the coming one, that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah. And John, in a sense, says, yeah, you're right. I baptize with water. And my baptism and my ministry was ordained by God to prepare the way. And I was told that whoever I baptize and the Spirit would descend on him and remain on him. He is the one. So how did John know that Jesus was the Messiah? Because the Holy Spirit that descended on Jesus and remained on Jesus. Now, now technically, if you're, if you're a skeptic, you're thinking, well, he could have just made this stuff up. And you're absolutely right. He could have just made this stuff up. But the Jews understood prophecy. They understood the Messiah would come full of the Holy Spirit. And how would you know that he was the Messiah? Because he would have the Spirit of God descending on him and remaining on him. So Isaiah 61 verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And so they kind of put two two together. When the Messiah comes, he will have the Spirit of God. And what will he do? He will preach good news to the poor. And what did Jesus do after his baptism? He preached the good news to the poor. He said, behold, the kingdom of God is here. And so it wasn't that John made it up. It was a prophetic expectation. And John says, I have seen this. The long-awaited coming one, the Spirit not only descended on him, but also remained on him. And John says, I will baptize with water, but the one who the Spirit descended on and remains on, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now, now what does that mean? It means that in the Old Testament, there was this prophecy where the people of God looked forward to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit won't just be on some, but the Holy Spirit will be on all God's people and fill them and empower them. And I don't have time, but you can read about it in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 to 26. It was a promise that the people of God was waiting for. It was a sign that this would be the Messiah. And John says, that's how I know it is him. But look at verse 34. Pretend John the Baptist is on trial. And we're we're part of this delegation. We're asking John, okay, but who are you? Who gave you the authority? Why are you doing what you're doing? And John says, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm the prophet. Hey, I'm actually nobody. I have a ministry, and my ministry is to be a voice in the desert, a voice of the Lord, to make straight the path of the one coming. And compared to him, I'm nothing. And behold, his name is Jesus. He is the Lamb of God, and his purpose is to take away the sin of the world. And some of you are jumping up and saying, well, John, how did you know it was Jesus? And John says, Because remember what the Bible teaches in the Old Testament. 
The one who will be anointed by the Spirit of the Lord will come and proclaim good news. And in a sense, will set the captives free, will open up the eyes of the blind. The deaf will be hearing, the lame will be walking, and the dead will be raised. And I saw the Spirit descending on him and remaining in him, on him. He is the one we've been all been waiting for. But in verse 34, he makes his final, he says his final word. Look at what he says. I have seen, I have testified that this is the Son of God. It's almost like a drop the mic moment. I'm done. I've seen. I've testified that this Jesus is the Son of God. When some of your translations, the chosen one of God. So here's the second title if you're taking notes that, that John attributes to the Messiah. The second not only is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but he's also the Son of God or the chosen one of God. Now we're wondering, okay. John gives us his testimony. But how are the people going to respond? How are we going to respond? How are the crowd that is listening in on John's witness and testimony going to respond? How are the religious leaders of that day going to respond? You're going to have to come back next week as we talk about it. Let, let me wrap it up. We're running out of time here. Let's talk about application and invitation. So John's life and ministry, John the Baptist, he was like a neon sign pointing to the promised one. Because every promise in the Old Testament will find its fulfillment in the true lamb, the true prophet, the true king, the true son, the true Messiah. And what we see is on the dusty streets of Galilee, John would proclaim the greatest message that have ever been. That God himself would become flesh and dwell among his people. That he would come to save and he would come to set the captives free. Where the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will walk and the dead will be raised. And he would take the sins of the world upon himself. And all of our guilt and all of our shame will be taken away. But again, we don't know yet how and when. And John is going to tell us in the rest of the gospel. And so, so here's the application for us. I think this is the very first thing we can learn. If you're a believer, I think this is what you can learn. Think about John's life and how it pointed to Jesus. Think about the posture of humility that John walked in. Shouldn't that be our life and our posture? Like, like, think about this. We, John, was not the light of the world. John was not the hope of the world. John was not the Savior. What was he? He was simply pointing to who the light is, who the hope is, who the Savior is. And even John would say, you know what, I, I, I cannot even compare to the worthiness of this Messiah and this humble posture he walked in. And as believers, this is the same posture we should walk in. 
Let, let me tell you right off the bat, if you are in Christ, you are not the light, you are not the hope, you are not the authoritative figure, you are not the Savior. You are not even worthy to touch the sandals of the Savior, the Messiah. And yet, somehow he invites you in to participate in what he's doing. To proclaim, I'm not the light, I'm not the hope, I'm not the Savior, but I know who he is. His name is Jesus. He is the light of the world. He is the hope of the world. He's the Messiah. He is the Savior. And it is in this humble posture that, that John walked in. It's this humble posture we should walk in. And if you do not walk in this humble posture, let me tell you, you're going to miss who the Messiah is. Just like these religious leaders did, so will you. So my application for you is walk in humility in this humble posture, comparing yourself to, to, the, to the Messiah and pointing people to the Messiah, to who the light is, to who the hope is, to who the ultimate authority is. His name is Jesus. And so that's your application. But, but here's our invitation. The invitation, whether you are believing or you're not, the invitation is the same. Believe in Jesus so that you may have life. For John tells us, this Lamb of God came into this world to take away our sins. In other words, all of our rebellion, all of our ignorance, all of our guilt, all of our shame, he would take upon himself. And all the judgment and punishment and wrath that we deserve, Jesus would take it upon himself and die on the cross in our place. And the invitation is to believe because of what he has done is enough for you. This was his purpose. And as we get ready to sit at the table, there's clear parallels between the Passover lamb and the Lord's Supper. Let me explain to you real fast. If you think about the Passover lamb, God told the people to go, kill the lamb, take the blood, put it on the doorpost, and go and eat the meat. But you better eat it in a rush. You can't just have a cookout all day and have it braise over the fire and slow cook and, and just put all kinds of spices on and you sit around the campfire and you're just relaxing and talking about who God, good God is. He says, no, take your cloak, tie it, and you eat fast. Wrath is coming. Judgment is coming. And what saved the people? Were they saved because they ate the lamb? Were they saved because uh, they took blood and put it on the door frames because they did all of these things? No, what were they doing? In their eating, in their taking of blood, what was it? It was a step of, of faith. In faith, they were trusting that what God said is going to be true. And in faith, they were eating this lamb and taking this blood and believing that this is enough, that this will save us from the wrath of God that is waiting for us. 
knowing that somehow by God's grace and mercy, he will pass over us and not give us what we deserve. So we eat in faith, trusting that this is enough. And if you think about it, what is this table? We, as the people of God, we come and we eat. Jesus, even later, I think it's in John 6, John 5, somewhere, where he talks about literally eating his body and drinking his blood. And we know it's not his literal, it's metaphorical of like we need Jesus to continually to feast on his body and feast on his blood. And when we come and when we eat and when we gather, what are we doing? In a step of faith, we're eating, believing that what Christ has done for us is enough. His body was broken for us. His blood that was shed for us. It's not us literally eating this that will save us. It is ultimately that Jesus has saved us on the cross and we are responding in faith. And this is why when we gather, we eat and drink and it is an act of faith and remembrance as we're saying, I know the sin in my life. I know the struggles that I'm going through and I believe that what Christ has done for me is enough, that he's paid for my sins in full. And this is why, here's a warning. That by you taking these elements and not believing in Jesus, you're taking it in vain. It doesn't mean anything. It is only when you look to Jesus and you eating and drinking in a step of faith, you're saying, Lord Jesus, I believe that what you have done for me is enough. Your body was broken for me. Your blood was shed for me. And in faith, I'm eating it. Continue to remember when I find myself in my struggle of sin and I want to try to save myself and I feel like I'm never good enough, I'm never measuring up, I look to the cross and say, what you've done is enough. I trust you. I believe in you. And this is the purpose of the Lord's Supper. This is the invitation that John gives us. Eat, drink, continue to believe that what he's done is enough for you. Even in your fight against sin, even in your darkest days, I look to you, I trust you. But if you don't look to Jesus believing it's enough, this doesn't mean anything. Our Holy Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for what you've done. I thank you for the living word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. I thank you, Jesus, that you are the Lamb of God who was slain in our place and who takes away the sins of the world. That on the cross you died for my sins. You paid for it in full. And so, Lord, help me in faith to constantly declare and believe that what you've done is enough. That you are the Son of God, the Chosen One of God. That every word and every deed that comes from you is the very word and the deed of God. And so, Lord, help us in humility to walk before you. Help us constantly in faith to declare your death preach the gospel to ourselves and our struggle with sin as we look to you, as we praise you. We thank you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we stand and worship the Lamb of God?